I'm a little bit nervous because um, I think I bit off a wee bit more than I could chew with this <laughs> selection. Hello there and uh, welcome to List Envy. My name is Mark Stedman and it is a pleasure to be in your ears once again. Uh, if you're new to the show, then hello. Uh, ListEnvyPod.com has lots of other episodes with um, lots of other interesting uh, lists uh, of, of all stripes. Um, this is a two, this is part one in a two-parter really, um, all about uh, women in literature. Um, my guest this week is Sarah May Chusen, who is a writer uh, and a bronze-winning podcaster. She uh, picked up the bronze uh, in the sex and relationship uh, category uh, in the 2019 Podcast Awards, and I was um, I was I was there, and uh, was very uh, very pleased that uh, that she she picked it up. Um, we met in London last year at a uh, podcasters meetup, uh, and uh, we uh, we we got on famously. And so I was delighted that uh, that Sarah May wanted to to come on uh, on the podcast. Uh, and uh, this, so if you're unfamiliar with the show, every week I sit down with a guest, and together we collaborate on a top five list. Um, the uh, the topic being chosen by the guest, and so this week's topic is underappreciated female authors, um, and. If you are unfamiliar with the work of the likes of Georgette Hare, um, for, for two reasons you're going to get very familiar. One reason um, is probably possibly self-evident that we're going to talk about her in, in a bit. Um, but also that is the focus of Sarah May's second season of her Fable Gazers uh, podcast. She's talking all about the life and work of Georgette Hare and she's got some quite amazing guests actually. We'll talk about that a little bit later. I'll catch up with you in a bit. But for now, let's get straight on uh, with my chat with Sarah May, uh, which began with me asking her why exactly she wanted to pick this list. Um, I've been working for about four years on a on a podcast series going in-depth into the life and work of Georgia Hare, who's a female writer that, whom I feel is severely underappreciated. And so I just thought it would be nice to have a few other women who are similarly underappreciated and kind of highlight, you know, these wonderful writers and see, you know, get people reading them, you know, more. What is your metric for uh, appreciated slash unappreciated? Wow, that is a very tricky question. Thanks, thanks for that, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, I guess I guess it's kind of you know it when you see it kind of thing. Um, well, with with regard to Haya, she was a massive bestseller in her day, and she actually was better regarded in the early years, you know, thirties, forties, fifties. You know, sort of on a palm uh, on a on a par with her contemporaries like Somerset Maugham and, you know, people like that. And now it feels it feels like she's, you know, I think people mix her up with her copy copycats like Barbara Cartland. And when they think of her, they think of like a bodice ripper, you know, because she was the queen of Regency romance. But when you think Regency romance now, a lot of times First of all, a lot of times people are very snobby about romance in general, which I think is not great. <laughs> um, and second of all, she's been tarred with the same brush as a lot of the people that are far, far, far inferior to her. And in actual fact, I think she's much closer to her idols like Jane Austen and uh, 
Dick, you know, there's even shades of Dickens and things like that. But I, I think she's much more farcical. So I'd liken her to people like P.G. Woodhouse as well. So if you had like a mashup of those two things, Austen and P.G. Woodhouse, that's much closer to what she's actually like. You know, she's, her writing is elegant. It's hilariously funny. And, you know, her grammar and syntax is perfection, you know. So it's not like a really, some of the sloppier kind of uh, people in the genre I'd never put her in that in in that kind of category. Um, so I think when you say metrics, it's tricky because I think the other women on the list are they there are connections which I've kind of found there's there's slight connections and often they've also been compared to Jane Austen as though that's the only person you could compare a female writers to. <laughs> it's weird. Um, but I find them you know they're they're different, so it's kind of hard to say. I think it's people like um. You know, some of them may have fallen out of favor. For some reason, their writing became viewed as sort of passe or quaint or things like that. And sometimes I wonder if those same writers would have had the same reaction or been kind of overlooked if they had been men. You know, it's 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 a difficult one to say. So in terms of metrics, it's tricky because I'm kind of like, well, a lot of them sold really well, you know, and yet you don't see them being compared to uh, the similar people of uh, who are male writers. So I don't, I don't know. I can't give you an exact. I feel bad. I should have created a no, no. There, there is no, <laughs> there's no wrong answer oh. at all, uh, and it certainly wouldn't be, you know, wouldn't be a sort of a math- mathematical. one. I was just interested <laughs> in um, sort of your your kind of criteria and, and your thinking with it, really. Um, so yeah, no, there's the, there's certainly no wrong answer. I, I'm kind of, I'm I'm, I'm a bit ashamed of how difficult. I found this list to put together because I can talk about female writers that I've enjoyed, but like, and, and I might run into this with, with a couple of these names that a listener might be like, I think they're like quite well appreciated. Mm. Um, and, and that's kind of the, that's kind of the problem because, um, yeah, I'm I'm not delving deep enough. I can probably talk about under rep- or underappreciated male writers because I I seem to know more of their stuff, and that's a mm. uh, you know that's 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 me missing out. Um, all right, well, would I would I be right in thinking that uh, she is perhaps your number one pick? You're absolutely right. Yes, um, and that's <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, I feel like I'm cheating a bit because she's the one I've been like forensically examining for the past four years Mm. and trying to put together this epic 25 episode series you know that's got audio drama and Stephen Fry and Joanne Harris sorry I'm plugging again I've got to stop that Um, (laughs) (laughs) I think that's infusing I think that's absolutely valid (laughs) and um, you know and I'm very fond of her works and I've been rereading them with a critical eye which has been so wonderful. It's been such fun. I can't tell you. Just discussing, you know, I've been trying to also convert people who've never read her, which, you know, isn't always successful. <laughs> um, but <laughs> on that on that tip then, what what would be a good starter? What what would you recommend that we start with? Well, I did compile in anticipation, you know, a short list of like things to start with. Um I mean she she did have a few that aren't as good because I mean the woman wrote fifty six you know novels yeah so, you know and, and so there's loads um, but I would start with Arabella um, there's also the Grand Sophie Sylvester Catilian Venetia the nuns I mean I could go on I could go on I could literally go on but 
on my website, there's a list of the novels that we'll be covering. They're actually not my list of my favorites. They're in chrono- chronologically, so we could give you, you know, we could also give you insights into her life at the time she was writing. So I've tried to give like a cross section. Um, and some of, and, and also I wanted to do some of the ones that might not have been as amazing, you know, so that it, it was a fair kind of examination. But um, yeah, those are the ones I would start with. Uh, <laughs> I'm. I suspect my list is going to be very, very different from yours <laughs> on a number of re- for a number of reasons. Um, so <clears throat> my first of a couple that aren't. Um, I don't know if she ever wrote books. Actually, she may have written one, um, but it's Victoria Wood. Ah, the the comedian. Yes. Ooh. Yes. Um, because. She's known as obviously as a as a, a comic actor um, and uh, also a, a musician. She was a phenomenal pianist, uh, really, really, really talented. Um, and I think as a writer, possibly um, overlooked because she was very unselfish um, in shows like Dinner Ladies, um, which is a lot. A lot of the, her stuff was kind of quite quite gentle um in in many respects um quite warm inclusive but with a a lot of the work that she did that especially she was very unselfish in giving the funny lines to other people um she was kind of the straight man to a degree uh in in that show um and she was not a particularly ribald character and then so she gave all the funny lines to everyone else to all of her all of her funny friends um and she, you know, she 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 knocked around with a with an amazing cadre of of people, sort of in the in the eighties and, and early nineties, uh, with Julie Walters and Celia Imrie and and all these, you know, fantastic actors. Um, but she herself wrote some lovely drama as well. Um, she did a, a thing with Julie Walters where she uh, they did a sort of surprise surprise show, and she was um, an estranged sister, and it was. It was um, there was you know pathos and 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 a bit of humour, but it was a, a very sort of interesting class study. And then she had the sketches, and she had um, the Acorn Antiques uh, musical, and and she wrote these amazing songs. Um, and I think as a performer, we we get her, and and um, as a stand up as well, we understand Victoria Wood. But as a just as a as a comedy writer for the the pure craft of writing, which she was quite a shy person, so I think that's probably really where she's shone and, and so that's why she's my number one wow i mean i think we're gonna have real trouble deciding on our final list because I, <laughs> pres- I i just you know anticipate that you know it'll be really tricky but yeah no she i mean obviously she's a legend so i wasn't even i must say i wasn't even thinking about other kinds of writers but i guess i should have as well <laughs> so that's my number one what's your number two or who is your number two i should say so my number two is Elizabeth von Arnim, who is someone who I read quite a long time ago, and I was just so impressed with the uh, elegance of her work and the insights that she could, you know, she was very, she, like another writer on, on my list, was quite famous for, as you know, she hung out with a lot of lit- literary, the literary glitterati, you know, her cousin was Catherine Mansfield, her children were tutored by Ian Foster and Hugh Walpole. She was, a, you know, she had numerous lovers, you know, including H.G. Wells and things like that. And all of these people appeared in her work. Mm. 
Um, so you know, I think that she she's she manages to to create these very vivid lives and she was like a proto-feminist you know if you if you look at the pastor's wife which is one of her books you know you become so enraged with how this woman is treated because essentially it's about a, a young British woman who sort of is kind of swept up by this German uh, pastor guy and is gets into this marriage and the whole journey of the novel is this poor woman trying to trying to be whatever she thinks he wants her to be and just be the, you know, try and be a good wife and a good, you know, pastor's wife. And she just ultimately realized she can never, she can never live up to his expectations because they're, you know, shifting and um, part of a paradigm that she can't quite grasp. Um, So, yeah. And I mean, for that, for the times that she was writing, you know, sort of late uh, 1800s, early 20th century, it's it's just so uh, so interesting to kind of get an insight into these into this milieu, you know. Um, yeah, she was famous for Elizabeth and her German Garden, which was she was actually writing that <laughs> because her um, count husband, because she married a count, uh, I think a Polish count, um, he became bankrupt, so she had to start writing in order to kind of support the family, and wow. uh, it was. It was such a success, it was reprinted 20 times in its first year. Wow. So she became, yeah, so she became pretty successful, you know. That must have been quite an, an interesting story in and of itself for, for at, at that time, for her to effectively be uh, the breadwinner, uh, if you like. Well, yeah, and also because I, I, she seems to have either married or become involved with a succession of pretty useless men. <laughs> Unfortunately, mm. um, and uh, you know, I think the writing was her way. She was obviously just a real, you know, go getter, and she managed to produce these incredible works. Um, there's a, there's an interesting link between her and hair that I didn't I didn't know about, but it gave me a little delicious kind of tickle. She had an affair when she was 30 years his senior with a very good friend and publisher of Georgette Hair, um, A. S. Frere his name was and i just like those funny little connections because i was like oh that's interesting yeah um obviously she was quite a bit older than than hair and uh anyway i i like things like that and she's she's had a few she she had a, a book the enchanted april which was kind of made into films she's had various things you know um made into stage plays and things like that so she's not totally ignored but i just feel that mm-hmm. she's not as appreciated as she should be Considering the yeah the impact that she that she made with some of her work. Well, number two, uh, I'm I'm bringing it. I'm bringing um, sort of 21st century side again um, because I mean that's well yeah. Um, it's uh, Nicole Perlman. Perlman, sorry, Nicole Perlman, and I would be interested to know who already knows this person's name. Um, but she, I think, deserves a shout because of the fact that she has um, made some phenomenally uh, co-written or written some phenomenally successful films over the last few years. And uh, I had no idea. And I think I've never and, and in the circles that I've um, uh, that I've I've paddled in, um, 
she's never come up. And uh, so this is Nicole Perlman, who co-wrote the Guardians of the Galaxy film in 2014. Um, she also wrote the story for Captain Marvel, uh, which was uh, was it uh, earlier this year, and uh, for Detective Pikachu, uh, among um, lots of others as well. She's um, she's been a, a, a busy uh, a busy person, and I just think Guardians was a phenomenally successful film, not just box office wise, but it was beloved. And I think a lot of these Marvely things. I'm not. Um, I'm by by no means a a Marvel nerd, um, or even that much of a fan. But the the fact that it all sort of gets piped through this Marvel machine and and it's kind of factory uh, produced, and it's you know it's it's the credit is it's Marvel, like it's made by Marvel. Uh, maybe you've heard of Paul Feig. Um, yes. Oh no, it's Kevin Feige. Paul Feig is the other guy. I think Paul Feig is the um, the bridesmaids guy. Uh, Kevin Feige is the uh, is the is the um, Marvel guy. And and if anyone's heard of anyone within the cinematic universe, it tends to be him. Whereas the writers don't really get a look in. And I think she massively deserved it. So that's why she's my number two. Well, I am a big Marvel fan. I have to say. Um, oh, cool. And uh, you're going to make this this episode cool. I can tell, Mark. <laughs> 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 so well, yeah. Delete is appropriate for your for your own version of what cool is. <laughs> um, and I really like that you kind of going into something where people aren't, you know, a, as part of the industry, kind of the way that they run things, they don't acknowledge writers or whatever. Um, I, yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? It's it's like with um, I forget his name now. Why is my brain not working? But um. You know the guy who was going to direct Ant Man, and he, you know. Oh yeah, um, uh, uh, Joe uh, Cornish. Yes. yes. Uh, sorry, no, not no, not not him. The no? cha- the, the director guy who he worked with. Um, he worked on Hot Fuzz and all of those. Oh, oh, Edgar Wright. Thank yeah. you. Wow, we got yeah, because <laughs> yes, of course, because because Joe was uh, was writing it, but yes, Edgar was the the director. Yes. I you. mean, I was always quite fascinated with that process of you know. He's such a. You would have thought he would be perfect for the whole Marvel thing, and ended up kind of not going on to finish directing the final product because I'm guessing they had creative differences. So you do kind of wonder what goes in and what what it takes to be a writer in that kind of massive machinery and kind of still produce something that has, you know, as much charm and energy and freshness as Guardians of the Galaxy. So, I mean, fair dues, yeah. I mean. It's good that we're giving someone like that a shout out. Yeah, I, I, I think so. Just you know, even if it just makes p- puts the name on 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 someone's radar to you know for someone to look out for again. Exactly, especially female. Absolutely, um, and for what is you know not a what you would consider a a female heavy film uh, in terms of certainly in terms of what's on uh, who's on screen. Um, but yes, okay. So uh, number three, please. So number three, I might be. Sailing a bit close to the wind by calling her underappreciated <laughs> because okay, I mean, but then again, it, it's like you're saying someone will turn around for each and every one of these things and be like, "Listen, I know she's very well known, blah blah blah." You should be looking at this person, this person. Um, it is Mary Stewart who wrote Moon Spinners and uh, Nine Coaches Waiting. Um, she is. I mean, 
I, I've I've always loved her works. I read Moon Spinners when I was very young, much in the same way that I read uh, quite a few of the Georgette Hairs when I was younger. And they kind of they're mesh enmeshed for me with this sense of nostalgia and romance and because you know when you read something at that age that makes an impression on you it really stays with you and you kind of continue to savor that enjoyment whenever you read it in the future and moonspinners was like that for me um it's it's just she conveys she often has uh, these kind of romances featuring regular people who are put into these dangerous situations and it's not that they're particularly you know got major spy skills or they know how to do ninja moves or anything like that it's that they're perfectly normal but when they're put under pressure they exhibit this kind of bravery and they kind of um, rise to the occasion and (laughs) the heroines often discover they don't know much about the heroes in the beginning but then through these dangerous situations the, the hero kind of reveals himself to be you know someone interesting or worthy of you know uh, falling in love with. And Moonspinners is a very good example of how she's able to really create a sense of place. They'll often be in these wonderful locations like Crete or, you know, places in Greece or Greek islands or or things like that. And um, I mean, I can feel the sunshine when I read that book. I can, f- I can feel the salty water on my skin and things like that. You know, she just creates such a vivid sense of, uh, of the place. And it, you know, if you if you need a holiday and you can't afford it in these dark times, <laughs> I say you know pick up Moonspinners and uh, there was a terrible film made of it though. Um, I love Haley Mills and she was the the lead. It's funny because I I remembered it vaguely because I'd watched it again. It's a Disney movie, oddly enough, but, but it's totally crazy. It's really it doesn't stick to the plot of the book, and it goes very psychedelic. I think it must have been you know one of those sixties things where you're like yeah everybody. 1964, bang it, bang in there. Yeah, exactly. I think there was a few people smoking a few things because it just is nuts. But um, it's a pity because Haley Mills would have been a perfect, uh, a perfectly play one of her heroines. Um, She's got that kind of girl next door, you know, charm. But yeah, and I mean, she also wrote some fantasy stuff as well, which was really uh, well regarded. Of the Crystal Cave, and it's all about Merlin's upbringing, you know, the Hollow Hills. Which I don't know, you know, if you if you're not familiar with her sort of romance or thriller, thriller, you might you might well have come across her if you're a fantasy fan. But again, I just feel, and also I don't know how much of these, you know, the women not being appreciated is because a lot of them are painfully shy and very very private. She shared that with with that quality with hair. Mm. Um, she absolutely hated any kind of publicity and you know she actually cried when they when her first book was published and they they put like the next rising star you know which most people would really love (laughs) but um yeah so I mean again I feel that and maybe again it's the romance thing maybe it's the thing that romance is definitely classed as a genre that's kind of beneath critical notice a lot of times it's often denigrated so you know a lot of women write 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 romance and you know it's often written off as this kind of lesser lesser genre 
do you have a, you know, obviously given the work that you've been doing at the moment, have you sort of come to a, a real conclusion as to as to why that is? I wish, I, you know, I really should have thought of that before this podcast and come up with a really concise and, and interesting answer. But well, I've sort of, I've sort of sprung it on you to be honest. I think that it's just because it's considered a woman's genre. It's like chiclet, you know, these these kind of quite denigrating labels are placed on it. And it's funny because in her day, Hare, for example, and I'm sure Mary Stewart as well, and Elizabeth von Arnhem, were very well read by a huge cross-section of people, including, you know, men, you know, lawyers, doctors, you know, that kind of thing. And it seems like in this age where everything, most literature has to be put into a very specific box. Yes. You know, you got your chiclet. You got, you, you know, to the point where when you're even writing, when you're writing books, you have to consider it nowadays. You have to be able to break down exactly what sub your book is and what demographic is going to, this is going to appeal to. And I don't think they did that quite as much when these women were writing. So in a way it was, I think the books were, you know, I don't know. So it, it's it's kind of like, now, if you're a romance writer, then it's a very you you only appeal to like whatever women between the ages of you know whatever it is and whatever it is. <laughs> and I don't know. Maybe it's just that. Maybe it's the kind of snobbery, the kind of sexism, or maybe it's I don't know. I I, I do think obviously that has a lot to, to a big role to play. It's like you were saying. I was also when I was putting the list together struggling a bit and finding a lot more men men's names were popping into my head um when i was thinking of of choices so i don't know like have we all have we just been socialized to thinking oh it's not quite as good or do you know what i mean i want yeah i i, I do and i wonder about that because there's a couple of books that i've um i've enjoyed recently that i think would be considered romance i mean i i, I guess i i think of them as as dramas and maybe that's my male way of, of somehow justifying it to myself i don't know um but they are kind of um it where love and 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 relationships and romance are the kind of central themes um and and i i think I, as i'm talking about this now i really actually do think that there is a a delineation that's that's probably male female based on the writer because if I apply the same criteria to, um, and I'm forgetting his name now, uh, uh, McEwen, Ian McEwen, and talk about a couple of his books, they might be considered in the same way as the book something at the moment, like uh, He Said, She Said by Erin Kelly, um, or uh, which I which I enjoyed uh, earlier this year, or uh, Girl on the Train, um, which are sort of on the more dramatic scale, but really are about love and relationships and 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 that's you know that's kind of what what their focus is uh but then when ian McEwen writes them then they are definitely dramas they're not romances <laughs> i know somehow they have more grit or more like density somehow you know in our in our brains i i know that i mean i think this is definitely something that we have to sort of fight against and certainly with hair because the whole Regency romance thing, there's been so many copycats, so many people, and and the quality has gone, you know, is wildly d different. You know, it varies. And, I mean, her work was really based on research, deep, deep research. She would buy letters from people. She, you know, she'd go to auctions and or ask the uh, sort of descendants of people to give her these letters and memoirs so that she could get the colloquialisms and fashions really right. Whereas, you know, 
everyone who's copied her, including Bob, Barbara Cartland, would would just sort of pluck stuff out of there without knowing the context or knowing the full meaning of it. Um, and that would really piss <laughs> hair off. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, so I mean, I, I don't know. It's 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 a you know, it, it's a real pity that that's the way it is. But okay, um, I'm actually going to go for a for a writer of a book now for my next Ooh. one. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm I'm sort of skipping up and down the list because as as we're talking, I'm I'm sort of I'm shaping my my list in my head. But um, the one I'm going to go for is um, I spoke about this this author uh, recently on uh, an appearance of um, Your Own Words, which is a podcast that I think uh, you might enjoy. Um, it's worth worth a listen, um, where uh, people talk about uh, books that they are enjoying um, or books that, that are important to them from from their past or, or that are um, from their present. And I talked about a book from my past. And I talked about this author, Jean Kemp. Um, and G- Jean was... Um, she sort of knocked around in the si- uh, 70s mo- uh, mainly and wrote for children and young adults. And it's weird. She was a, a big fixture in my childhood i read quite a few of her books and then when i'm going through the list of her books none of the names spring out as she wrote a lot so it may be that there's just some obscure ones that that are further down the list um but she wrote uh, books like the turbulent uh, term of tile tiller uh, or tyke tiller uh, sorry um just ferret no way out uh, she had a uh, tamworth pig series which was uh, quite popular because uh, she's sort of a midlands ish uh, midlands adjacent um lady and she wrote for I don't know. I, I I felt like I talked about this uh, when I did the, the podcast about Nicholas Fisk. I felt slightly talked up to mm. in in her books, um, and I I thoroughly enjoyed them at the time and was thoroughly engaged by them. And um, in that way, when when you're that age, she's just you know that that was just one of the names. Didn't know anything about her, um, but went through quite a few of her books and short stories as well, and just found them interesting and intricate and um character driven and like you 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 know i, I would pour over these because usually in audiobook format and i would i would go over them again and again and, and um and they were about characters and relationships that you, you weren't talking about uh supernatural things or superheroes they were all just kids in school um or in secondary school or in college and just just normal life stuff that they went through um and she she spun out the drama from that and the um she was i think mainly writing male characters and so um she was she 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 did very well at i think tapping into to some of the um the angst but also the also knew the silliness of it the sort of smallness of it when you're that age everything feels so big but when you get a little bit older you realize how nothing <laughs> like how, how that, that just didn't matter she seemed to understand that and, and communicate that uh even in the 70s um when she was writing and and uh, so yeah jean kemp wow so <laughs> would you have read that when you were much younger yeah so when i was in my uh it was definitely i think i think i actually started reading her in primary school late primary school so i would have been 10 11 and then up to uh 14 15 i think maybe um and and some of them were a little bit 
above my my age bracket uh, a couple of the books um but i i thoroughly enjoyed them and and um yeah and like i said I, I, I would return to them but it's it is strange that i can't looking at the list i'm not really they're not the names aren't clicking with me uh, but i can remember the stories just not the names of the books and they don't match up with with the bibliography. <laughs> that happens to me with hair, hair novels, you know, um, <laughs> because obviously there are some. You've got so many, yeah. And there are some similarities, you know, clearly. So, um, you know, often like I'll be like, oh, um, the nonsense, what happens in that one? And then I'll be like, oh, you know, I'll, I'll start reading the first page. And I'll be like, ah, yes, it's, you know, it's this this chap and this lady. Um, but I think, you know, as we as I said earlier, I think when you read books and they make a big impression on you when you're when you're young, it just has such an indelible, you know, sort of, it, it just reaches into your brain and, and ever afterwards when you think of the, this, it's so evocative, isn't it? And it's kind of... Completely. And I think it's interesting that you say you felt talked up to because I think that's the best thing, especially when you're young. Sometimes you, I remember like reading sort of George Eliot. I feel like I've read a lot better when I was a when I was a kid than I do now. I read a lot of trash now. <laughs> but, um, um, and just feel, just that feeling like some of the meaning was just out of reach. Mm. And yet the more, and yet you could kind of get the feeling of the, of the meaning. And, you know, that I just felt like that was such a good part of my education into human nature and into things that were grown up, like this grown up sort of plateau of knowledge. And, uh, I mean, I think that it's great to be talked up to. I wish, I wish that we didn't. I feel like some sometimes a lot of media that's created for people is very much the other way, <laughs> talking down, talking down, yeah. down, down, very in the in the swamp. Oh, absolutely! <laughs> like, I mean, t- TV just does that all the time. That's what TV does. The best TV lets you get lost for a bit um, and figure it out and and run to catch up. Um, and and but but it, it's it, it tends to be few and far between yeah a lot of tv is um and and i think maybe that's we've sort of inherited that now with with certain books uh this sort of we've got to put everything on the page so that no one gets lost because if they get lost they might turn away and we can't have that yes exactly and there's a lot of uh, sort of political correctness and um which is not not a bad thing i mean trying to make the world better and everything but sometimes i feel like there's you should be allowed to to think things through yourself and and sort of glean nuances and and things about characters that are perhaps flawed that you know what I mean like you can't you shouldn't it shouldn't be so prescriptive or so signposted a lot of the time uh, yeah so I, I like a bit more ambiguity exactly. please uh, what's your number four so my number four is Barbara Pym okay um, and I was reading a, a New York Times article when I was tr- trying to remind myself of of her work and stuff um and they said she's forever being forgotten and forever revived so she's one of those people who was really falling in and out of fashion um she's she's like austin she's often you know there are similarities between them because they write about you know small lives small moments supposedly small things and she kind of manages to to derive these greater meanings from these things and and relationships that they have you know that's churches and vicarages and academic um you know you know cambridge type places 
And uh, you've got to have a lot of patience, as the New York Times says, for endless jumble sales and whist drives <laughs> and the interfering <laughs> wisdom of dowagers and distressed gentlewomen. But, you know, as you could tell from my love of Regency romance, I, I do have an endless <laughs> taste for that. Um, but she, she, you know, when she when kind of went into the 60s, her sort of quaint, the quaintness of her milieu kind of fell out of fashion and the publishers, she sh- publisher dropped her. And she, even though she had sort of people who really championed her work, like Larkin and, you know, people yeah. like that. I'm just reading that here. Most underrated writer of the century. Well, I mean, I mean that is a big. <laughs> Imagine someone saying that about you. I think you could die happy with, <laughs> with that. But yeah, um, I guess it didn't really make the bitter pill of being dropped uh, too no. much better. More swallowable. Yeah. I know. So it's really fascinating because you sort of think to yourself, if you're a brilliant writer, then surely you deserve to be published. But um, I think she kind of she 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 kind of gets back into Virago did a I think they did a kind of revival of her work and she ended up winning the Booker Prize and and or, or nomin- being nominated rather for for the Booker Prize and things like that. So you know she she is I think there are moments where she has been appreciated as she should be, but again it's kind of it sort of fades away and I don't again I don't know if she was a man if the same thing would have happened no because I think she was from what I understand um, she was writing about um, issues that not that that men don't like they're they're not these books aren't for men so you know in, in terms of they're not 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 exclusive you know not in not in that sense but like it's okay that some books aren't for you. You know what I mean? You know, and 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 I think that often gets um, forgotten. So w- when we're judging things, we are we're, we're thinking about um, it, it, okay. Let's be honest; it tends to be a certain group of of person who does the judging. And if the book is not for that panel of of you know of judges, then it's going to get overlooked. Um, but the fact that you've got excellent women, um, which is a great title for a book, um, but it is it comes from from a phrase which is used to describe um, women who just sort of get the job done and you know, keep out of the way. It, like it's not for the men. <laughs> I know it's it's, it's very um, hard, isn't it, to convince you know men because a lot of her main characters and a lot of her heroines are not particularly beautiful, not particularly you know whatever. They might be sort of middle aged instead of like glorious and young and you know whatever it is that you know might might be more obviously appealing, um, and they have this kind of viewpoint and this sharp, acerbic, clear sighted. Particularly when they're looking at, at the male characters and you're sort of hearing their thoughts about them and the way that they kind of manage them, perhaps, or the way they try and. Um, uh, navigate the relationships that they're attempting to have or not have with these people and it's yeah it is it's kind of it's a very it's a very mature kind of outlook and it i guess yeah and and sometimes a little bleak and a little um not bleak but like sort of she has such a a way of puncturing any kind of sappiness or Anytime with her, anytime there's a bit of romance, it kind of gets immediately undercut by some kind of really, <laughs> you know, like like she said, for example, in a book called An Unsuitable Attachment, um, 
this this woman, one of these characters I've been talking about, eventually gets this marriage no one expected for her. And she dis- and you think, okay, well, great, happy ending. But no, she she can't allow that. So she dis- she describes <laughs> the someone in the in the uh, one of the characters describes their you know love affair as uh, imparadised in one another's arms, as Milton put it. And then he corrects himself in casserole, perhaps. You know, you've got to kind of really just always undercut the romance, and that can be very dis combobulating for people you know when you're ex- when you're expecting something to go a long way a-, a certain way and then it goes a different way it can be a bit you know uncomfortable and I think that uh, you know I mean hair for me sometimes I find her books a little bit hard to swallow in this regard because I'm a massive romantic and you know hair really provides you know every time because she was, you know, she was writing, she was catering for a broad audience and she wanted to make money, basically. <laughs> she was always having problems with mm. the tax man and complaining about, you know, the money that she didn't have and supporting a lot, you know, her family. So she always gives that kind of final happy ending, you know, which I find deeply satisfying. And I know that's because I've been socialized to it and it's unrealistic and blah, blah, blah. But yeah, I think... It's just more satisfying. Yeah, but sometimes I think Pim's brand of realism and this still with this lovely humor and this sort of elegance is bracing and necessary you know what marvelous review <laughs> uh right well um what about you what's I, your number four well yeah well mm, i think i'm going to go for abby morgan Ooh. i'm going back to tv and film um so abby morgan is uh the writer of the uh fantastic tv show the hour i don't know if you ever saw that on bbc yes Two, that was, was was that about the sort of news um, broadcasting. It was. Yeah, that- um, it was a, a news and current affairs program set in. Well, it was. It was set in the fifties, late fifties, early sixties, and um, yeah, it was. It was uh, for a, a fictional TV show called The Hour, which was a, a sort of news thing, a, a sort of a news night thing, um, and it got into a bit of spy stuff. I think towards the second series, uh, it had. Dominic West in as his um, one of his first roles outside of the wire, but the the show itself um, was was just great um, and so well written. Um, and then uh, she also wrote The Iron Lady, which is a fantastic film. There's there are lines in that weirdly for a film I've only seen once. There is a line in that that sticks with me, and it's it's um, when when Thatcher sat in a uh, doctor's office, and the doctor asks her how she feels and I, I might be sort of misremembering or misquoting but she goes on a big tirade about how no one talks about thinking anymore we're, we're always asked how we feel not what we think and i just found it a really interesting speech um and obviously you've got great performances in a film like that but but it it stems from the writing which was fantastic and uh, she also wrote shame which i've heard a lot about but still never seen um and so um as someone who's, you know, there's there's three things there that I think most of us have heard of, and um, I, the name Abby Morgan is one of those that kind of rattles around. Um, uh, I think gets 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 passed around, but not necessarily um, appreciated enough uh, or, or understood um, the the contribution um, and the ongoing contributions uh, potentially um, understood. So uh, that's that's why she's my number four. 
Wow. Yeah, no, I mean, I think there's a lot of female TV writers again, and probably like just generally, you know, we don't really tend to think of our favorite shows and then think, oh, yeah, so-and-so the writer, you know. Um, And I don't know if that's because a lot of these modern TV shows have teams of writers or if that's more of an American thing. Well, they'll often I have think, like, yeah. yeah, it is common in in the states, and 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 obviously, I you know, I was I was thinking about the likes of Tina Fey, uh, but you know, she's very well appreciated for what she does. Um, yes, uh, as is you know someone like Phoebe Waller Bridge, who's although sort of yeah, relatively up and coming, still made a massive splash. Yeah. Oh no, I was just saying, you know, someone like Sharon Horgan is one of my favourites uh, comedy writers, and. Uh, She's on my but, list. <laughs> oh, is she? Oh, I love her. Yeah. Um, but um, I, I wouldn't, I must say, I, I don't know if she's underappreciated either, though, because I think she's yeah. made quite, or, or sort of as underappreciated. I think she's she's made, most people will know her. She's kind of carved out of quite a specific, you know, area of comedy for herself. Yes. As an actress as yeah, well. Yeah, absolutely. You know? um, yeah, yeah, that, um, yeah, she, she, I've sort of skipped over her for that reason because uh. I think thinking about it more, I'm like, I think, I think we do understand um, how, how good she is at what she does. Uh, so much to think about. All right. So uh, who is your, who's your number five? So my number five is, I, wa- I was very torn between these like two writers, um, one of which was Nancy Mitford and one of which was Cynthia Voigt. Uh, Cynthia Voigt is a young adult writer who, I read one of her books when I was a kid called The Runner and it literally changed my life. You know, it was a it was a period where I was very self-conscious and confused and, you know, the changes going on in your body and you just don't know what you're doing. And this book, the main character is so sure of himself. It's set in the 60s and he's just this guy who does not give a damn about peer pressure or anything like that. And it was so heartening for me to be like, why do I care so much about this, uh, you know, all of this nonsense? And it sort of gave me a bit of breathing space to be able to be like, you know what, you don't have to. You don't have to care. I mean, there, there are moments when you should and there are moments where you shouldn't, you know. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I, I sort of, then I was thinking, oh, but, you know, Nancy Mitzford, she's a very fascinating example of another one of these writers who, was writing about her first of all she's her sort of fame as a person in society vastly overshadowed her her the you know whether or not her writing was of quality because I think a lot of people just she again included people in her social circle and she was part of the bright young things and she was part of the Mitford sisters you know who um I'm just going to find it in my notes because <laughs> they they were all very contentious characters in different ways. And you just sort of think to yourself, what must it have been like to, to have been a part of that kind of, you know, society? Like she would have, like the paparazzi, you know, if there'd been paparazzi in that time, she, but all of them would have been swamped with it. Mm. Oh, yeah, here it is. The, the Times journalist Ben McIntyre described them as Diana the fascist, Jessica the communist, Unity the Hitler lover, Nancy the novelist, Deborah the duchess, and Pamela the un- unobtrusive poultry connoisseur. So they're all famous. Wow. For, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of dodgy, they all had very differing, vastly differing political views. And, you know, two of them uh, were very, very contentious because they were very 
in favor of Hitler. And in fact, Unity, when she heard that war had been declared against Germany, shot herself in the head, you know? So she was writing almost, her writing couldn't be divorced from her real life. And I wonder how much that has affected people's views of of her work and the quality of her work. Because when you look at books like um, Love in a Cold Climate or The Pursuit of Love, uh, the quality of them and the, the, the way that she forensically examines these people and puts in, you know, people that would have been recognized in society, but, but, you know, reveals their characters in such an interesting way and has this sharp dialogue, you know, she became famous for this dialogue. Um, it's just, it's just really interesting because you wonder how would she have been, how would we look at her work if not for the fact that she had this crazy social life and, you know, they all had affairs and, you know, it's, it's, uh, she went on to write some historical fiction as well, Madame de Pompadour and Voltaire in Love and a book about, uh, Louis the 16th, I think it was, um, yeah, so it's it's very interesting to to think about, you know, how she was maybe handicapped by this kind of fame. Mm-hmm. She, you know, I don't think that she particularly she ended up stopping writing fiction and to focus on the historical uh, novels that she wrote. And I wonder if that's because she kind of again didn't really see herself like Hare. She never really saw herself as being on the same platform as people like Evelyn mm-hmm. Waugh, who was a great friend of hers and a great supporter um, and encouraged her, her writing. But it is interesting, you know, I, 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 how we can never tell, I guess, because, you know, she, her life was what it was. Yeah, so if you, if you had to, as they say, put a, put a cigarette paper between the two of them, uh, it's not it's not necessary for you to for you to make a delineation, but I'm curious, uh, do you weigh one uh, one name uh, against the other between Voigt and Mitford? I think in terms of the impact of their work, so social impact, I think Mitford's work probably has made more, more impact. Um, I'm not sure how well-known Cynthia... Vo- I, I wanted to pick her as well because she was a young adult novelist and I wanted to include someone who was writing more for, for younger people. Um yeah, so I mean, obviously, she's also won awards and things like that for her for her work within young adult. And again, I I I wonder how much critical. I think young adult novels have really come a long way in terms of being regarded and analysed in an academic sense. But I still think that maybe they wouldn't be considered in the same light as you know adults for novels, um, novels for adults. <laughs> Um, so, you know, it, it, I don't know if, if you can really compare them because they're kind of writing for different and, and they're so different. I mean, you know, Voigt is writing about small town America, um, several, like the Tilleman family saga, you know, she wrote like several books about the same family. Um, and they're very simple, uh, subjects and dealt with in, in a much more different way. Whereas, you know, Mitford's books were all about the, the surface glitter and getting getting underneath that in a very cutting way. She has quite a cynical viewpoint about 
relationships, you know, they seems to regard infidelity as just part for the course, which was maybe because that was mm. her experience. <laughs> um, uh, you know, again, it's that wholesomeness, you know, which which I I sort of gravitate towards, um, which hair has that you know, there's the sense of the main characters gravitating towards each other because they are they see through the the sort of facile nature of society that surrounds them, but they see the humor in it, and they you know. Whereas Mitford doesn't seem to, she has a bit of a poor opinion of, although she's never judgmental. That's the thing that's really interesting about her. She never judges her characters, even if they're quite terrible people. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Sorry, I don't even know if I answered your question. (laughs) No, it's all right. I I think you did in the, again, it's, you know, the, uh, the journey is more interesting than the, uh, than the destination. Um, well, for my <clears throat> for my final one, I'm going to go to another um, sort of young adult uh, author, and I'm going to go for a woman who is probably unappreciated, uh, underappreciated, um, because like I'm sure no one's heard of her, um, because I picked up. So I kind of want to talk a, a little bit briefly, actually, about um, being me being a young boy and reading books and enjoying the books and not thinking about the gender qualities of those books. Mm-hmm. But as I sort of as I'm an older man now, looking back and going, oh, no, they, they, like they were definitely, definitely girls books. And I enjoyed them thoroughly. Um, but they were they were for girls. <laughs> and um like it's just interesting to look back on on how that just wasn't it's not even that it didn't matter it's just it didn't register there there wasn't in my childhood a delineation between well i'm i'm sure i knew what a girl's book was but i i didn't pick these things up you know one of them was called dream pony and i loved it i loved this book and it was about a girl who got a pony <laughs> it was a big thick novel about a girl who got a pony um but this this uh this writer is tamora pierce or Tamara Pierce. I'm not sure. I've never been sure how, how you say her name. Uh, but I discovered her in, I uh, discovered her book, uh, her first one, I think just in a, in a library on holiday. And um, she has a book series called Wild Magic. And Ooh. I I drank this stuff up. Um, I I just, I nom nom nom. Like I really, I really got, got into this. Um, and it was uh, about a girl who... Uh, it's it's set in sort of rural America, and um, this is a it's a girl who has an a, an affiliation or an, an an affection affinity, I should say, an affinity with horses, and she um, she's able to speak to horses, and then she finds out that um, through some teachings, uh, she's able to speak, I think, to all animals and um, ask. For, for their help with stuff and then she gets on you know there's there's adventures there's wizards and witches and mages and and um all these all these different um magical peoples and beings and um i i think i read three or four of these books uh and absolutely loved them uh there was a publisher called uh point fiction and uh, this point company did lots of things. They had like point fantasy, point horror. Um, and I got quite into that brand for a while. And this was the first I'd read of these, I think. Uh, and um, I, I as, as a kid, was was thoroughly engaged by them. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and sort of pleased that, that 
um that was the case um and and they were books that i, I revisited uh so yeah the uh Tam- tamara tamara bleh, tamara slash tamora pierce uh, and the wild magic uh book series uh, i don't know how well they hold up if they do but uh i really enjoyed them as a kid wow i mean it sounds great <laughs> <laughs> it's hard isn't it it's because it's like a lot of these you can you can they're, they're names that have uh are, are part of history whereas you know they're, they're not really for me they, these are just people that i found in a bookshop um and it might be nice if if more people read them like yeah. it, it's not the same as you know who you're talking about with with, with your names and so it, it, you know it's 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 an odd one <laughs> i think it's really interesting though because it's nice to have a combination of perhaps more sort of historically relevant people but with people that were just relevant to you that made yeah. you know someone who who made an impact on your young mind <laughs> with their magic ponies um which incidentally <laughs> sounds like something i would have loved as well uh, so it's it's yeah. you know I mean, I don't think as well we need to say it's just for girls. You know, boys can like ponies No, no, as no, well. absolutely. You know? <laughs> uh, yeah, and that's it. And, and uh, that's why I can sort of look back on that and go, I'm so glad that there was never a, you know, um, there was never a delineation there, never from my parents, never from anyone else that, that was sort of, there was no judgment. Um, and and so, yeah, obviously, that if you, I think, if you're a kid and you're made aware, if someone looks at a book and goes, oh, that's a girl's book, that's a boy's book, which kids are still somehow ingrained with a lot of that stuff, I think. Mm. Um, you know, I was talking to you earlier and I was, uh, I, my, my brother was um, was helping me make up uh, as, as a woman um, yesterday and, and get, all, get all made up. And I was speaking to his two nephews and they've got a very clear sense of gender. And, and I don't think that's come from uh, their parents. Uh, I think it's you know it's it's kind of there. There is girl stuff and there is boy oh, stuff. Really? And I think I thought every all the kids were woke these days, you know, and and I very know. very sensitive to. The I thought the same gender normative, you know, paradigms and sort of upending those or 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 you know claiming different different sort of shades of gender for themselves, you know. And now you're telling me they don't? <laughs> I, I know. I think that is happening. But I think what's happening is that some of that is getting rewritten. Oh. Some of those pathways are getting rewritten at an earlier age. Um, so so the, the, the lad who was the most sort of, oh, that's not what, you know, that's not what boys look like. He was very young, whereas the slightly older one was, was more sort of, okay, sure. <laughs> you know, and I, I think... Um, and I, 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 yeah, I, I think we're getting more accepting, but I think there is still an ingrained thing, but it gets rewritten mm. earlier now. It, you know what I mean? It's interesting that uh, does know. that come from? Yeah, it's so interesting. It's like that the couple who um, recently caused a furore on the sort of daily radio shows when they were saying that they were going to they they had a baby and they were going to start start calling the the, the kid um, the pronouns uh, they them their. Um, from the word go so they would never like impose a gender on the child and you know it caused a lot of of uh, controversy because people you know people have strong opinions about this kind of thing so I suppose maybe what it is is the kids are more aware of these delineations and maybe more keen to kind of make their feelings felt about it. I don't know. Yeah, I, it's yeah. Um, we we could wade in some choppy waters. I know. Um, I think we're going to get ourselves <laughs> into trouble. 
It's been yeah, smooth absolutely. sailing thus far. <laughs> um, so I, 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 while, while we were talking, I, uh, I looked up um, to see if I could find the book Dream Pony, and um, I think it's probably a terrible book. <laughs> no, no. Listen, what matters is how it's kind of enshrined. Oh no! As a kid, I thoroughly brain. enjoyed it, yeah. but I'm just reading the synopsis. I'm like, I think it's probably a bad book, um, but that doesn't matter. Uh, that that's You've that, got the that was that was by the by. The dream yeah, no, absolutely. I've still got is the in your dreams. <laughs> absolutely, reality. and it will always remain there. <laughs> so what a list, huh? Um, yeah, it's. Uh, it was quite the education, like genuinely and and really really interesting. Um, it's one of the things that I, I'm not only love about this show, but I'm really proud about this show. Is, um, it's got to say like how ignorant I am, <laughs> but you know I, I I come in as a naive and um, I leave with uh, I leave with opinions and 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 I think correct ones. Um, and and that's wonderful. Uh, and and it's it's a testament to to having uh, extremely knowledgeable um, guests. Uh, don't worry, um, it's not all going to be um, important. Um, in a couple of weeks, we're going to be talking about potatoes. Uh, that's that's true. Uh, speaking of that, actually, um, that's going to make uh, my next uh, next week's guest furious because we actually uh, went on on quite a discussion on her own podcast, uh, which is called Your Own Words uh, about potatoes. Anyway, uh, we'll, I'll probably talk about that next week. Um, I want to say thank you, obviously, to, to Sarah May Tucson for uh, joining me. Uh, we recorded this a while back while she was um, getting ready to uh, actually launch the um, hair, hair, hair Today series. Um, and uh, and it's, it's now out. Uh, a link is in the show notes. Um, you can find it uh, in, in Apple Podcasts uh, and uh, all the usual places you would expect to find fine podcasts. Um, I, and I, I do I do suggest that you go and do that because um, she's a, a wonderful uh, storyteller and uh, I'm, I'm really excited. And, and uh, as she's uh, alluded to, there's, uh, there's a guest appearance by one Stephen Fry. Uh, there's and there's, there's lots of other stuff. So um, yeah, go go check it out. Link is in the show notes. Uh, you'll also find links at listenvypod.com. Um, also, want to say a big thank you to Russell Parker, who has made available, who has given me the opportunity, let's say, to watch the classic. Um, 1970s film The Apple, which was discussed at great length um, by uh, by myself and Ben Smith last week uh, on on this very podcast. Uh, we we talked about uh, the films of the Canon Entertainment Group, and The Apple was was chief among uh, his picks uh, and is is uh, one of his favourites, and is sort of the existence, uh, sort of responsible for the existence of a podcast that he records. Um, and uh, and so I'm going to try uh, and have a uh, a bit of a film watching party with a with a fellow pod mate um uh, uh who who has also been on on this show uh and uh, about whom I'll be talking um a little bit later uh in in uh, subsequent weeks I think uh, but yeah I reckon we're going to get together and and see if we can uh, sit down and watch this so um it was it was really lovely to see on Twitter um Ben and and Russell having a chat and and uh, discussing their their particular loves for the film discussing BIM which is something that I, I I now only have a tangential knowledge of but will soon become far more acquainted with um so if you if you want to um, get in on the action. My watch just decided that um, Siri needed to get in, uh, in on that particular action. Uh, be like Siri and um, and uh, find uh, find the podcast at List Envy Pod uh, on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, and finally, listenvypod.com slash newsletter. I finally got it together. I finally got a web page up there um, where which which links through to uh, to uh, you can subscribe to the newsletter, which I uh, I humbly recommend that you do because this week there will be. Um, 
or Sunday's edition will have lots and lots of links to uh, to the books that we've discussed this week. So if you are interested in them, um, then you'll get a, a whole big raft uh, of links um, to uh, to stuff to go and check out on your Kindle uh, or whatever. So listenvypod.com slash newsletter comes out every Sunday and it's a great way to catch up with new episodes or old episodes. Um, not old episodes. You get it. It's fine. All right. Next week, uh, we are doing literary heroines uh, and I'm uh, going to be chatting to uh, the potential Potato obsessed Becky Graham, um, and uh, that's going to be a fun one. But for now, we've got a very, very important job to do. We have a uh, a final shortlist to uh, to build. So let's rejoin the action, as they say. With my, no, they don't. But let's let's go back to uh, back in the past with myself and uh, Sarah May Tewson uh, and uh, our final compiled list of uh, underappreciated female authors. We've got a difficult task ahead of us uh, in that we've got to now whittle this this list down to to five names. Um, we we both know that Georgette Hare is number one. That's that's not being <laughs> yeah yeah. Um, is there a place in your heart uh, or, or or your list uh, for Victoria Wood, uh, Nicole Perlman, uh, Jean Kemp, perhaps? Yes, well, Victoria Wood. I would say that she's definitely an iconic person and I didn't know that much about how involved she was with the writing side of things so I would say maybe we should put her in there like two or three just because I I feel like she is an important person to to sort of celebrate in all aspects of her talents okay um I'll draft her in as number two for now and then we can we can move it around um I was really taken with your um uh, discussion on Mary Stewart, I have to say, um, and I, I really, I think I, I, I felt moved um, <laughs> uh, in in, a, in an empathy sense, um, and, I, and I really, I don't know, there's something in in the story that you were telling and the way that um, that she lived her life um, from what you've given me that that really made me think I want I want her to be to be really high up there. I'd, I'd like to see her number three. Great, yeah, I'm happy with that. Yeah. <laughs> Um, that leaves four and five. Now I think, um, I, I think a... Barbara, Barbara Pym has to be in there, but oh, sorry, yeah, go, no, go I was for gonna it. Say, I think you, I think it would be important to have a TV writer as well, you know, just so that sure. we have a wider spectrum of people included. Yeah. Um, um, I would say then, I think Abby Morgan is a, is a good contender for that. Okay, uh, and I would I would put her in as number five, and I would put Barbara Pym as number four. Ah, okay, I like it. Yeah, because I think I like the social conscious uh, or the social consciousness stuff uh, of someone writing in in that time as well in the in the sort of the fifties um, when there was even more cultural change. I mm. think that's really cool. Mm. Um, so let's run this down and see how you feel. Uh, number five, Abby Morgan. Number four, Barbara Pym. Number three, Mary Stewart. Two, Victoria Wood. And number one, Georgette Heyer. Obvs. How do you feel about this list? Do you consent to this list? I love this list. I consent to this list. Sounds amazing to me. So, uh, just before you go then, please tell me about Fable Gazers. Tell me about uh, the uh, the Sugar Baby Confessionals. And, of course, Heyer today. Tell me everything. (laughs) So, Fable Gazers is an indie podcast company that I set up and my dream has been to do these kind of series as opposed to like long running weekly shows. 
so that I can tell a complete story each season. Um, and the, the, the dream was to do them once a year, but they take me so dang long that I don't know if I'll be able, and I'm having a baby shortly, so who knows what will happen. But um, season one, we actually won a British Podcast Award, which was... Um, yeah, you oh, did. It was, it was such great validation because, you know, as you know really well, we, we work so hard on these podcasts. And it's, let's, be right, let's be real. There's not much remuneration. There's not much like, like we don't have managers yep. giving us, like high-fiving us for when we've done a good job. So, you know, to have people recognize how much work had gone into it and uh, uh, was really gratifying. Um, and obviously that, that it's a totally different story. Every story I tackle is pretty much pretty different. Um, so season one was about um, <clears throat> a very good friend of mine who decided to become a sugar baby. That is somebody who takes money or gifts for in exchange for companionship or sex. So it's all about her journey over two years and what happens, the ups and downs, the kind of negotiations with her husband with whom she's in an open relationship. And it's just really fascinating. And I, it kind of fell into my lap, but ultimately it went somewhere that I didn't expect either. And I know it sounds saucy as hell, and it is a bit saucy. I'm yeah, not going to lie. That's fine. No. <laughs> but it's also about, you know, modern love and, and how that's evolving in this age and uh, dating and relationships and friendship, female friendship as well. So definitely, you know, if anyone's into that kind of thing, season two is all about Georgette Hare, who I've just been waxing lyrical about. Um, it's going to be like 25 episodes. One week will be interviewing people like Stephen Fry, who are massive fans of her work and kind of asking why she's. they think she's been underappreciated. There's going to be a cinematic investigation where I talked to people like Andy Patterson who's a really well-known film producer who did The Railway Man and Girl with a Pearl Earring and sort of asking why what are the difficulties of of putting a Regency romance on the screen because it feels like she has a wealth of books that would make fantastic movies a la Pride and Prejudice and Sense and Sensibility, which people can't seem to get enough of. And yet she's been completely <laughs> overlooked. And, and to me and other fans, that's an absolute tragedy. And then on each bi-weekly episode will be a book club episode where anybody can join in. The reading list is on our website, fablegazers.com. And I try basically to convert people who've never heard of Georgette Hare Sometimes they they don't read romance. They don't, you know. Um, so it's been it's a bit of an uphill battle at times, and uh, um, <laughs> it doesn't always go in my favor. And I'll do a sort of running tally of how many people I manage to convert, um, and that's really good fun. But yeah, and while we're doing that, we'll be contextualizing the books that we look at. Like, what was she up to at the time of writing the book? You know, how did what was happening in her life impact her writing? And you know all of that sort of thing. So I'm hoping that it will be enjoyable. It's a hell of a lot of work. I've got a, I've got a very real deadline in the sense that I am literally <laughs> bringing a new human into the world in December. Yes. Um, so, you know, like fingers crossed that I'll be able to do it in time. But I'm hoping to release in December. Uh, the, the podcast or the child? <laughs> <laughs> Both. <laughs> Funnily enough, yeah. The, the the baby drops on Apple Podcasts. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh well, um, Sarah May, this is uh, uh, this is all very exciting. Uh, obviously, I wish you all the best for both of your uh, your births um, in 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 December. Um, and 
uh, obviously links to it to everything uh, to Fable Gazers and uh, uh, and to season two um, are in the show notes. Um, but yeah, fablegazers.com. Um, uh, wow, what what a what an absolute wonderful hour this has been to spend with you um, and to uh, to talk about some some wonderful uh, some wonderful writers. So, Sarah May, thank you very much for uh, for spending time with me today. Thank you so much. I feel nourished. <laughs>